Welcome to Campaign Chemistry, where we pick the brains of creative alchemists, business wizards, and marketing geniuses behind the world's greatest brands. After building her career at agencies including Crispin Porter and Bogusky in Boulder and Mullen Lowe in Boston, Katie Hornaday joined Barclay in 2012 to put roots down in her home region of the Midwest. 11 years later, she has nearly doubled the size of the creative team as the agency continues to build momentum and pick up larger clients, such as Planet Fitness and Red Lobster. Hornaday attributes this growth to the foundation she set as executive creative director, a role she took on in 2017 to build a strong sense of trust, communication, and collaboration amongst the team. In this episode, Hornaday also chats about Barclay's use of generative AI and teases some upcoming work this fall. I'm your host, Allison Weisbrot, Editor-in-Chief of Campaign US, and you're listening to Campaign Chemistry. Hey, Katie, how's it going? It's so good. How are you? Doing well. We are here after Labor Day. It sort of feels like back to school season, even though we're adults in <laughs> a 365-day <laughs> working <never> environment. <laughs> it never ends, but uh, that feeling never tends to go away, does it? No. I'm excited to chat with you today. Barkley has been a really interesting creative shop to kind of follow, especially over the past few years. Tell our listeners a little bit about what Barkley is and uh, who you are and your role at the company. Sure thing. My favorite topic. Um, so I'm Katie Hornaday. I'm the <laughs> chief creative officer of Barkley. So in its simplest form at Barkley, that just means I oversee anyone and everything that makes anything. So um, the design team, the production, our Barkley Films team, a team called Fuel, and our creative team. So that's about 180 folks. Uh, we have offices in five cities, but we're headquartered in Kansas City. And we're about 550 partners, which is what we call our employees. And we sort of pride ourselves on this idea of whole brand thinking. Um, it's the idea that we service the entirety of the brand, which I'm sure we'll talk about more. For sure. So first, why do you call your employees partners? Is that like an actual, like, are they partners in the business or is that just like a fun, a fun way to make them feel more included? <laughs> I love it. It's a great question. So um, it's actually something that is a holdover from um, a while ago, like a decade ago, we had an ESOP, which meant that everyone who was an employee actually did own a little piece of the company. And when that ownership um, changed over and, and we became employee owned, but not an ESOP, we wanted to keep that nomenclature around just because it does feel like we're all invested in building this thing, which I think is sort of central to the way that we operate here. Awesome. So Barclay has been around since 1964. Talk about how like that legacy um, and, and that ability to like stay independent throughout your history kind of shapes what the agency is today. Yeah, I love that. Um, so we have been around for over 50 years, like you said. Um, we've always been independent and I would say probably the the core of what led us to where we are today was 17 years of being Sonic's agency. This way predates me. Um, but for a very long time, the agency's biggest client was Sonic Drive-Ins. And they were the client for 17 years. And the whole agency basically was oriented around how to service Sonic. And about... Um, 12 years ago, Sonic put the account into review, Barkley didn't defend it. And we were sort of left with this moment in time where we got to decide what do we want to be as an agency? Um, 
largest client notwithstanding. And that is really sort of the the path that we were set down. Um, this whole brand thinking ideology was built then. We went after a lot of research on modern consumers. And I always think of um, that sonic departure as being probably the best gift to our current agency that we've ever been given, even though I'm sure at the time when it happened, it did not feel that way. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It's sort of like back in the day when an age, a whole agency could be built around one client, right? And that relationship lasted decades. It's not yes. really like that anymore. No. Talk about like what it sort of took. Well, I mean, I know you, I don't think you were there at the time, but talk about what it took to kind of reshape the agency, I guess. Like how did the agency change after that? Yeah. So, I mean, you said that like it's, it doesn't really happen like that anymore, right? Like accounts move much quicker, but in a lot of ways that is kind of a gift to our industry. I mean, it's stressful for sure, but it allows us to sort of build agencies around what we really think is valuable to brands versus being built around what one key client needs. And that's where we were with Sonic. Um, you know, they were a very traditional brand at the time, lots of TV. And so when they left, we sort of had to step back and say, okay, if a giant chunk of the agency's revenue no longer is coming in from one brand, what are we going to do to build an agency that can service lots of brands? Or what do brands need right now? Um, and at the time, it started with one giant piece of research because nobody had actually written anything on how to market to millennials. And so, yeah, that was about two mm -hmm. years before I started at Barclay. But they had started down this path of deeply researching at the time millennials, which has turned into generational research, which all sort of led to this idea that modern consumers, which is the way that we refer to them, they don't think about brands as just what happens on TV or what happens um, in a banner ad. They think about a brand as every single interaction they have with a brand. And so being an agency that can service every single piece of a consumer's experience with a brand helps us build stronger brands for the way that modern consumers view them. Mm. So is that where this whole brand thinking philosophy comes in? Talk about that and how that kind of differentiates Barclay from other agencies. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we talk about it as a whole brand spectrum and we talk about it as having a red thread that sits at the center of it. So we're looking for that core, really simple idea that can galvanize both consumers and marketing, as well as that internal workforce. So our first step in working with any brand is to go and find that. And then we go and bring that red thread to life across every step of that spectrum. So everything from advertising and content to PR, to new products, to the way that you name your conference rooms, to how you train your employees, all looking toward this one central idea. Um, and I always say, you know, what a shame if you have a brand and you go and spend millions of dollars making the perfect TV spot only to have that fall apart at the hands of somebody who's working at the counter or somebody who answers the phone when you call customer service. But those are the parts and pieces that sometimes fall down because they're not all directed at that same central idea for what a brand means. Yeah, no, it's so true. Um, I think it's very easy to kind of declare your brand as something through a, a TV spot and then like actual the actual interactions that customers have with it can be very different. So as a creative leader, how does this perspective kind of shift the way you think about the work and the process for sort of getting to the best creative ideas? I love it because for me, it just turns every single part of a brand into a playground. 
there are different opportunities at every turn to figure out how can we get a little more creativity into here? How can we bring that brand idea to life over here? And the best part is, is when we walk into a pitch, we pitch ourselves as that true business partner. So we open doors right out of the gate for us to be the ones who are saying like, well, what if we did this with the internal workforce? Or how about if we looked at products in this way? And we've worked really hard over the last decade to build up legitimate capabilities in our walls in order to be able to bring really business sound, but also creatively savvy ideas into each of those steps. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about how you kind of like organize your team and all of that, but um, let's talk about why you joined Barclay in the first place. You joined in 2012. Um, It's been 11 or so years. (laughs) What made you want to want to go there and, and make what's made you stay? I laugh because I think like, I still can't believe I've been here that long. But initially (laughs) it started, uh, I started my career at Crispin in Boulder and then moved to um, Mullen in Boston. And we had our daughter while we were living in Boston. We thought we could be awesome and try to figure out how to be two working parents with a baby in a city. And turned out that it was a lot harder than we gave ourselves credit for. And we also really missed our village. Um, So we started to look at how we could get closer to home. I'm from St. Louis. My husband's from outside of Kansas City. And we we agreed that um, we only would move if we found something that we could be genuinely proud of and excited about being a part of. And so we started interviewing around. um, And when I interviewed at Barclay, you know, at Mullen, I was there, if you're familiar with that agency at all, when they had moved from um, out in, you know, outside of the city into the city, brought in new leadership, and they were really building this thing. And I got to be a part of that. And I really loved the idea of building something. And when I came mm-hmm. to interview at Barclay, I found that same sort of wet clay and that, um, you know, lack of ego that we were open to people being a part of building something and wanted people to bring in fresh ideas. And I think I immediately could just sense that this was something that I could be a part of, that I could be proud of. And honestly, for the last 11 years, I have felt totally affirmed in that initial feeling. Yeah, that's awesome. And you've, you've really, you know, risen through the ranks there. Now you're, you became CCO in um, 2020 and there's been a lot of growth in the the creative department and the agency overall since then. So talk about that. The creative team has expanded from 75 to 180 people over that time. So what was it like for you kind of driving that growth? Yeah. um, I look back at when I was first tapped. I, I actually became ECD first, which put me at the top of the department. There wasn't a CCO above me. So I kind of look even back at that as that initial step. And, um, I often felt like, there were a lot of things I needed to fix. You know, I wanted the work to be better. I wanted the team to be in a better place. And sometimes um, it just felt kind of overwhelming uh, how much needed to be better in order to get to where I felt like I wanted us to be. And I look back at that and I think a lot of people and specifically a lot of creatives would have gone, just make the work great and everything else will fall in line. And I think that's a great philosophy for some folks. But for me, I really felt like I needed to make the team feel really galvanized. I wanted the team to feel like we had each other's backs. I wanted us to feel like, you know, if one of us had a win, all of us had a win. And so I worked really hard in that first year to just build a team of people who felt like we were really connected 
connected and like we were going to be really proud of whatever we did as a team. Um, and that worked mm. unbelievably well for us. You know, we really invested in each other. We invested in building structures that allowed people to become great leaders. We really um, drove inspiration and ideas that we wanted to be proud of. And if one team had something that landed in ad age or ad week or campaign, we all were proud to be a part of it. And I think that that has really fostered the culture that it's that it is today, even at 175 people. Um, it's just, it's really people first and, and the work follows. And I think that's sort of the opposite yeah. of some, some CCOs, but for us, it has been a game changer. Well, wh- talk about why that was your approach and like why you felt like that was so important. And then also maybe some of the things you did to, to foster that um, environment. You know, I think it felt like the first thing that I could affect. It felt, it felt wrong to me sort of in my bones to just start barking at everyone to make the work better. I think I felt like mm. we needed a foundation that, that would allow people to feel safe enough to do work that was brave or to do work that made other people uncomfortable. And I think I also just wanted people to want to show up every day at work, no matter what we were going to do. At the time, you know, openly, I'll say that the brands were smaller and the assignments may not have been as sexy. And so I think adoring and respecting the people that we worked alongside was a big element of us all feeling inspired enough to show up and keep doing better and better and better. Um, And in the early days, I did really simple things like reorganizing the department into smaller teams that had really clear mentorship and reporting structures. I sent a weekly email that I still send to this day where I noted the wins across the entire department so that everyone could sort of feel like no matter what you did this week, you had something to be proud of. Um, I started traditions. We have this silly tradition that we still have where we do this giant bowling party and everyone dresses up in costumes. And it's just sort of this moment where, again, we can be really connected. And I really spent the time stopping by every desk and asking about people's kids and what's going on with their house that they just bought and, you know, how their cat was and, you know, like what (laughs) was going on with yoga and the things that happen outside of work. And even as we've grown, it's harder and harder to do, especially in lots of different departments or in lots of different offices. But I try really hard for people to believe that um, who they are as a person matters and who they are as a person is what helps us make better and better work. And then somewhere in the midst of that, Google issued this whole um, research that they did on how to make great teams. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's amazing. Um, And Mm, I haven't. The core of it is people want psychological safety. And I think like not knowing it, that's what I was trying to build for our teams. Um, It's an awesome piece of research. I would love to read it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's a different approach and I, you know, it doesn't sort of escape me that you are a female and there are not a lot of female CCOs in the industry. Um, how much do you think that sort of like informs your, your, both your leadership style and your success that you've had in like cultivating this, this tight knit team that can really trust each other? I think it, it definitely informs a humongous piece of it. I think the hardest part about being anybody who doesn't look like the majority of leaders that you sort of quote unquote grew up under is you second guess yourself a lot. You can feel like you're doing it wrong when you want to do it a way that was different than everyone else who you ever worked under. 
I think there's a lot of sort of inherent insecurity in being more emotionally oriented. I remember in the early days feeling like maybe I'm not doing this right because this isn't the way that anybody who I have ever worked under would do it. Does that mean that I'm going to fail? Does that mean that I suck? Does that mean that I don't know what I'm doing? Is the work actually going to get better? Or should I do it the way that frankly, like my male bosses have done in the past? And I think it's really hard to, to step away from that thinking, but I've mm. learned over the years to try to trust my gut more and more. Hmm. Yeah. It's about trusting your gut, but also like, what about the environment at Barclay sort of allowed you to do that? Is it the, the leadership there? And I don't know, maybe yeah. the independence. Yeah. I mean, it is, you know, our CEO, Jeff, I remember from the beginning, I, I mean, I, I became ECD and head of the department about five years before I ever thought I would have a role that looked like that. And I was so overwhelmed. I had just had my second child. I was like, I was like, I think 90 days out of maternity leave when I took over the department. It was overwhelming. And Jeff just always said to me, like, you know, just keep going. You have the space and the freedom to fail, but I know you're not going to. You're not alone in this. Um, I do think there's a lot of camaraderie in the team here. And so I never felt like I always felt like I had my partner in Chris Cardetti, who's our head of strategy. And I always felt like I had a partner in Stephanie Parker, who's our head of accounts. And I always felt like I had an absolute safety net in Jeff and Dan. And so um, I felt like I w- it was allowable to fail, but I also felt like they wouldn't let me fail on my own. Um, and I do mm. think that comes from independence. You know, I think we're allowed to have a little more grace on the figuring out times as opposed to feeling like you got to know the answer right now, because if you don't make your numbers this quarter, you know, somebody else is going to force you to make decisions you don't want to make. So, um, yeah, I do think the independence plays into that. Yeah. So talk about, um, so you, you're building this team, you've expanded it. I know Barclays across five different cities, but talk about being based in Kansas city. Like what's it like to attract and recruit talent from there? What's the creative scene? Like, I know people often think of just like New York and LA is where all the agencies are. So talk about building a Kansas city led creative agency. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, I've lived in a number of different places. I lived in Atlanta before I was in Boulder and then in Boston and of all the cities I've lived in, and I loved all those cities, I love Kansas City the most. And the reason that I've always felt that way is this city is totally different than it was 11 years ago. It'll be different a year from now. It is sort of because it's still growing into itself and because there's a lot of pride for the people who live here in Kansas City, like it keeps growing, it keeps changing. And you can feel like as a creative that you can be connected to it all. Like, you know, in Boston, there were really cool things happening, but sometimes they felt like, oh, you had to know someone to know someone. And in Kansas City, when there are cool creative things happening or great restaurants opening or artist spaces or galleries, like you can feel like you're on the ground level of those things, which I think is really freeing as a creative. Um, And, Mm. you know, between VML Y&R being here and Hallmark being here and having been here for, you know, forever um, and a number of other design and, and ad agencies there really is a a thriving creative community. And I think what we find is when we get people here, they sort of immediately can see the things that they thought only existed in LA or New York. Um, Plus our cost of living Mm -hmm. is excellent. (laughs) 
Yeah, I can only imagine as I sit here in New York City spending yeah, all my like, money on rent. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's really great, but it also means we have an awesome building too, which is like huge. Yeah. Are you guys back in the office full time? Like, what's your philosophy on that as a creative leader? Yeah. Um, so we are back. We're back Monday through Thursday. Uh, most people work from home wow. on Fridays. We sort of were in and out of like, you know, we came back, then we sort of gently asked for folks to come back. And about six months ago, we just said, we believe collaboration is a key to the way that we do what we do. We believe that we will love doing our jobs more if we're together. And we had a, a very small handful of people. I mean, handfuls, nine, probably like three people who were, you know, openly unhappy about that decision. And since then we haven't heard anything like, um, Hmm. the energy is back. I think people are genuinely happier. And of course, if you have to work from home for a day, you can, but, um, sort of the, the net net is Monday through Thursday and it, it is working. Yeah. What made you do the four? I haven't heard many four day a week agencies yet. What made you guys feel like that was, uh, the right balance? Um, I think what we found, we were like sort of unofficially Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday for a little while there. And it felt like three became two days a week and it felt a little fuzzy. We even had a a point where we allowed people to choose their days. And I think choosing your days or not being consistently here when people wake up and they get ready and they drive to an office and then they come and there isn't energy to feed off of, or people have decided to stay at home. It's deflating to the idea of being in. And so we kind of found that Mm. four days felt right. And then Friday kind of feels like a gift where people can really feel like they can get things done or they can, you know, dig into what they weren't able to do at the office. And so far it's been great. Yeah. Do you feel like the the work is improving because of it or like the quality of ideas? I do. I definitely do. I mean, and I just think Mm -hmm. it's the nature of what we do, right? You can read a million articles, as I'm sure we all did, from across a ton of industries when everyone was sort of debating, do we come back or do we not? And even one of our ECDs here said, Katie, I think that's a genie that we can't put back in the bottle. And I was like, I don't know. I think we got to try. Because (laughs) I think for what we do, particularly as creatives, like being in a room and feeding off of each other and um, not waiting for someone, you know... To, to raise their hand in a Zoom or or even just waiting for a meeting in general to be able to like talk about an idea or proactively think about things that can help our brands. It just doesn't happen when you're at home. And I don't think that there's any way mm-hmm. to sort of debate that fact. Yeah. No, I think it's it's definitely more difficult to kind of bounce ideas off of each other. And even just the zoom lag, right. Can just kill an idea or a a comment that somebody was about to make that could have led to an idea. So um, it'll be interesting, I think, to see now post Labor Day, what, what agencies do in terms of (laughs) going back to the office. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about how creativity is changing. Um, about five years ago, I believe Barkley launched fuel, which was all about reaching younger audiences on different platforms and and you are really investing in it and growing it. Um, talk about how that kind of fits into the broader creative approach. Yeah. So I talked about that red thread earlier. And so the way that we define fuel is they are the team of experts in what fuels a brand's red thread day in and day out. So in a lot of ways, yes, it ends up being about younger demos, but 
it really is more about like those tiny moments that stack up to help us understand what a brand is. That digital display ad, that social media post, that email journey, how all of those things are really connected and informing what we think of a brand, you know, in addition to what you saw on TV or what you read in the press. And so we built Fuel um, about five years ago. It started with five people and today it's 65 people. And they're very integrated with our creative teams. In fact, oftentimes teams, so like Planet Fitness has one GCD and then two CDs across Fuel and across um uh, our creative teams and they all work hand in hand in order to service that brand. But there are people who really, really understand that once again, the algorithm changed in um, Instagram or threads launched this weekend and we got to figure out what to do with it. And those are different brains and people who think about success in a different way than those who are thinking about what to do for our New Year's Eve TV spot. Um, and so we really found this need to build out this team. And when it started as five people, it had one client. And today, Fuel works with over half of our clients. And that continues to, to grow and evolve year after year. Um, our web team is inside of that. So we have developers and UX and, and AR filter developers as part of that team. Um, and it really has become sort of our content team as well. I think it's just a... Um, it's a space that you can't ignore. I'm, I, and I know, you know, mm -hmm. the vast majority of agencies have not ignored it, but our model seems to really be working for us. And um, it's been an awesome ride. Yeah. So talk about like, as you know, brands look for, you know, this whole brand thinking, I guess, right? Like the ability to reach consumers wherever they are, wherever they might interact with their brand. Um, how does Fuel does it does fuel take more prominence in pitches in sort of like the reasons why clients pick Barkley as their agency? I wouldn't say that they take more prominence, but I would say they take equal prominence. So I think what we used to see yeah. in agencies is the team that made the email journeys or the team that did the social content, they were sort of like the studio team off to the side, right? You know, the the creative team would come up with the big idea and even in a pitch, they would be the ones who would lead it. And then they would sort of create, you know, those teams would create the smaller pieces. This really is about uh, the intersection of how those two teams play together, what we understand and know in the social space and how it informs the way that we show up in paid media um, and vice versa. And, and so I think as we think about whole brand thinking, they are just like necessary. They're proof mm -hmm. of the way that our model operates. Without that team, you know, the whole thing kind of would fall apart on one end. And so, you know, I do think clients hire us often because we can do a lot of things across that full spectrum and fuels a big piece of that and, and continues to be a bigger piece of that. Yeah. It's sort of like, you know, breaking down the silos, right. Between digital and, and social and traditional and how that doesn't really serve a client's brand anymore to keep those things separate. Totally. And like, you know, we were talking about earlier, you know, galvanizing people and being more relationally based, a huge piece of why that team works and why that integration works is because we've worked super hard to foster real human relationships across those teams. So there isn't territorial, mm -hmm. you know, ways of approaching assignments so that those teams really are holding hands in service of what's right for the brand versus just whatever is going to be good for each individual portfolio, et cetera. For sure. Um, so I 
wouldn't be able to finish this interview without asking you how Barkley is approaching generative AI, because that is, I think, one of the biggest topics on creatives and everyone's minds these days. Um, do you have a philosophy about it? Do you have a strategy for how the creative teams use it? How do you kind of see that impacting your work over the next couple of years? Generative AI, never heard of her. Um, What's that? <laughs> What's that? Um, so yeah, the way that we're looking at it is really like a crawl, walk, run. Um, right now, everybody in the team has mid-journey seats. Everyone has chat GPT seats and closed seats so that we can make sure that we're keeping our clients' privacy in mind, that we're keeping anything that's under NDA in mind. Um, and we are finding so much benefit. And as I'm sure everyone is like, I actually have been thinking a lot lately about how laughable it is, the number of hours that we have traditionally all spent on building comps just to get a client mm -hmm. to see a comp to understand an idea, right? And now the team is able to use MidJourney and whip that comp up and we still get that same benefit of a client going, oh, that's what's in your head, but without a million hours of Photoshop just to bring it to life. Um, we have been training everyone on AI and safety measures. We've been getting everyone seats. We have a, an ongoing, just like as simple as an email, that is a ongoing email thread of folks being like, I tried this and this is working. I tried this prompt and this is working. We have a guy in our team who just um, sort of, for us, cracked the code on how to use it for um, storyboards, which saved a ton of time. Mm. But it's like a very intricate process of how you have to start with one image, modify it, and then create successive images off of that. Um, so him just sharing a tutorial of that. So right now, what we're doing is trying to find ways to, to use it to really help benefit us. Of course, you know, earlier this year, we were doing what everyone was doing, treating it like a meme. We wrote a, a romance novel for Smoothie King that was uh, a love triangle <laughs> between a man, a woman, and a watermelon smoothie. And it's a full-length romance novel that was um, up for sale. We um, have been working on some stuff for Motel 6 with Tom Bodette um, using AI. So like we've played around with it in that way, but now we're really using it as a tool for our teams. And then going forward, mm -hmm. we're looking at ways that like we can actually really um, use AI to further drive this idea of whole brand thinking. Like what does it mean to have AI be part of how we build brands, sort of a, a central nervous system, if you will. And our data team is currently working through how we bring that to life. So it's been a big topic. Um, there's lots of places all over um, the agency that are also using it for different things. But I think in our team, yeah, we're trying to find ways to relieve ourselves of some of those more like menial tasks in order to be able to bring more value at a higher level. Yeah, it's interesting how quickly it's sort of like you said, it's moved from like using it to do silly things for clients to now you're actually finding real ways that it benefits your business and allows you to speed up the work. As you kind of build um, Barclays team, like how do you see this tool impacting the roles you hire for or the types of talent that you want to attract? Yeah, I mean, I think I think first of all, you know, I get Harvard Business Review every month and every month there's another article on the front of it about like how AI is going to impact, you know, the the workforce. And I think the first step is for anybody in our teams and anybody that we would hire to not see this as something that is a threat, but instead to see it as something that we're curious about and interested in ways that it can help us and make us better. Um, and I think as we move forward, yeah, there's potential that 
we might be hiring prompt writers instead of, um, you know, just someone who is an entry level art director, or we may be looking for folks who have that skill set in some way, shape, or form. But I also think what that skill set is is going to change probably three months from now, six months from now. So I think it's really people who remain curious, people who remain excited and want to experiment with sort of whatever comes in. And right now it's AI. Uh, you know, a month ago or two months ago, it was what is Threads going to do to totally disrupt the world? Like, <laughs> I think that's just sort of at the core of what we do in this industry. And um, being open to finding ways to harness it is really what will benefit us no matter what it is today or tomorrow or whatever AI does to us six months from now. Right. It's just sort of being prepared, right? And being ready to jump on the next thing and explore it. Exactly. So we're coming up on the end of the year. It's sort of things like Super Bowl and football and all these things are are coming up. Talk about some work you have coming out. Maybe you can tease for us that you're really excited about. Yeah. So um, we always say that New Year's Eve is the Super Bowl for Planet Fitness. So um, that it the is. team is deep in that. And unfortunately, I can't talk at all about what's going on there because we're still in some uh, negotiations of things. But that is like our favorite time of year with that client. We, you know, get to go big. They push us to to be as bold as the uh, network clearances will allow. And um, so the team is really working on that. Just this last weekend, I was actually looking at some really beautiful new work for Winnebago. Um, that's a client that we've had for a number of years. And the team just finished some stuff that um, we'll be launching in the next few weeks. And it's just it's a really beautiful category to be in and they've created some really beautiful little stories of what Winnebago allows people to do. Um, so that stuff's been great. And yeah, we just, um, we've had a few new business wins that we're starting to get those cooking and I don't know, there's always something going on. <laughs> there is indeed always something. <laughs> well, um, one thing I wanted to to make sure we touched on, and I think this kind of ties back to your leadership style, is you wrote a camp, uh, an op-ed for a campaign called How to Give Feedback Without Being an Asshole. And I thought that that was such a great piece. What's one piece of advice you have for creative leaders to give feedback to their teams that is constructive criticism and doesn't make them, you know, feel like they never want to share their ideas again? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I always think that, especially when we're looking at ideas, removing the stuff that you know is not going to move forward is just a gift to teams because it allows us to focus in on the things that we really think we can build on and we can craft. Um, but I also think, and I, I say this probably at nauseum to our teams, is like, please tell me if you think I'm wrong. I want to tell you what my gut is. What my gut says is not going to move forward, is not going to be the thing that's going to win the day, is not going to be our biggest, boldest, best work. And I want you to tell me if you disagree. And in that discussion, maybe we end up crafting it together and making it better. Or maybe you know something that I'm not seeing from the way that it's been presented. But the thing that I struggled with the most in my career before being a leader was the wall full of ideas and the like, I don't know, just keep going. Or um, I haven't seen it yet. I just want to see more. Like, I don't think that helps anyone get better for the next meeting or for the long haul. And so I think as a creative leader, viewing feedback, not as something that is like going to ruin someone, but as something that actually is a gift to helping someone 
either defend something they love or nurture something that you already know is great is, is the best thing you can do for your teams. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's hard to grow without learning and getting feedback, right? So (laughs) we've we've all been there, right? We've all had the like, I don't know anymore. I'm like, what do you need to see? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Katie, thank you so much for, for joining me today and for your, your candor and your honesty and giving feedback and all the, (laughs) all the, the ways you've built such a great team at Barkley. And yeah, excited to see what Planet Fitness does for New Year's this year. We will make sure you see it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you will. Thank you. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe to Campaign Chemistry wherever you get your podcasts and head to campaignlive.com for all the latest news on advertising and marketing.